This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Thanks for coming. I'm not going to give you colds, but I have developed something on the trainer from London. Suffering a little bit, unfortunately. Suffering a little so bit. So as long as you don't mind if I dab <laughs> uh, increasingly as we go through the afternoon. Right, well, um, hello. Uh, welcome along to the Edinburgh International Book Festival here in Charlotte Square Gardens on uh, what's turning into a lovely Saturday afternoon. Uh, my name's Keith Gray. Uh, I'm a writer and reviewer of teenage fiction, and it's my massive pleasure today to introduce you to the author sitting next to me, uh, Simon Mayo. I'm not really an author. Well, we're going to get to that bit. Okay. We're going to talk about that bit, yeah. Uh, um, Simon, to many of the older people in the audience, actually will be known as one of the UK's uh, best-known uh, broadcasters of television and radio. Um, I can remember Simon's oh, first here we go. ever. Yeah. <laughs> first I'm so ever, old. Uh, BBC Radio 1 breakfast show, back in the mists of the 80s. I was putting on my school uniform at the time, yeah. ready to go to school. Uh, but it must be said, I've got it, the, the breakfast show slot, the breakfast show slot is, still is, still to this day, one of the most prestigious slots you can have. Yeah. Uh, one that's highly thought over and sort of. So to say that I actually left school before Simon left the breakfast show slot yeah. says something about his popularity. Uh, it's, you know, a heck of an achievement, I think, to be on the breakfast yeah. show that long. But there's been Radio 2, uh, there still is Radio 2, the drive time slot with a book club, which we may talk a little bit about as well. Uh, Radio 5 Live with a massively, massively uh, popular um, film review show with Mark Hermode. Uh, and if we're lucky, we might get a chance to say hello to Jason Isaacs later on. You never know. Um, as well as the TV. Uh, I can remember watching Confessions on Saturday Night Television. And Simon can be found on television at the moment with Blockbusters on Channel uh, Chan Challenge Channel. Um, but we're here today to talk about Simon's first novel. Itch, um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I genuinely really enjoyed. So please, please welcome along to Edinburgh International Book Festival, Simon Mayer. Thank you very much. Thank you. Particularly enthusiastic down on the yeah, front. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Very good. Already clutching a copy. Yes. Uh, so the way it's going to work, um, Simon and I are going to chat for a little bit. Um, maybe, maybe entice him to do a little bit of reading. Maybe not. We'll see how it goes. Uh, there will be a signing afterwards in a signing tent just next door. So when we're all finished and when we've had a chance to answer some questions from you as well, if you just give us time to get out and get uh, into the signing tent next door, then you're pretty much happy to sign anything of put course. in front of you. Absolutely Whatever. anything put in front of I'm you. I'm very cheap. Um, but to start us off, if that's okay, I would just like to ask one of two questions. Certainly. We're going to have some slides as well, aren't we? Yeah. We Here's slide number one. Which is the cover. <laughs> if you've read the book, you will notice that this itch here is slightly cooler than the one in the, in the actual book, who's slightly more geeky and not a hunky Robert Pattinson type. As, as displayed here. But it's a beautiful cover and I'm very happy. Well, uh, saying that, saying that itch is uh, slightly geeky, I mean, to be honest, this is a first. This is the first time I've ever come across it. been in the industry a couple of years. First time I've ever come across it. This is the first time I've read a book. Uh, the hero, um, the hero, you know, uh, faces up to danger with the bad guys and has to do, um, see at the pants escaping and all that kind of thing. And yet, he has no eyebrows. 
from this page is... one all the way through. This poor guy. Well, they go, they grow have... back sort of slowly over a period of time, but essentially he does the whole thing eyebrowless. Eyebrowless for the yes. whole for the whole book. He's yes. eyebrowless. Uh, but you're right. He's a bit of a geek. He's not a super spy. Uh, he's not I'd a vampire. I'd say he's eyebrowless if you haven't read the book because he blows them off on the first page. It's not that he's got some kind of eyebrow disease. Oh yes. Yeah, and they eyebrow alopecia or something. No, it's. It's because he blows them off with a, a, a dangerous You're not trying to tick off minorities of people... That no, 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 no. Like he's that. just... He's a bit reckless with the gunpowder. But he is a geek. In yeah, the best yeah, yeah. sense, he's obsessive, he's a collector. Uh, where did he come from for you? Is there a bit of itch in you? Or have well, you met an itch? Itch is a... Uh, the most important thing to say, he's an ordinary kid, OK? He's 14, he lives in Cornwall. He goes to the local school, uh, he has a mum and dad, he has a younger sister, Chloe, he has an older brother, Gabriel, who we don't really see very much. Uh, he has a cousin, Jacqueline, who is known as Jack, who's also 14 and is in the same class. He has no special powers uh, at all. He, uh, a lot of you guys will collect things, he collects the periodic table. Um. <laughs> <laughs> is the perfect reaction because that is the reaction which he encounters all the way through the book. You collect what? He collects the periodic table. Actually, now, and this, this is preempting another question, I'm going to show you the periodic table uh, because we have it uh, arranged here somewhere. It's not there. Keep going. There it is. There you go. It's the world's most boring slide, ladies and gentlemen. The periodic table put together by Dmitry Mendeleev, who's the guy in the beard. And you see you sniggered, right, when I said he collected the periodic table. And now you're thinking, yep, that's why I sniggered, because it looks the most boring thing in the world. If Itch was here, he would say, if you collect the periodic table, you are, what else is there to collect? Because this is a catalogue of everything in the universe. Everything in this room is made out of that or an element on the periodic table. Anything in any other universe is made out of something on the periodic table. You know, your teachers, your family, your house, this building, the water, everything is made out of the periodic table. Therefore, if you collect the periodic table, you are kind of assembling the ingredients of life. And he finds that really, really exciting. It's just that everybody else finds it really weird and titters the way you tittered just a few moments ago. See? But he finds it particularly exciting. And people who collect the periodic table are called element hunters, which is why it's got element hunter on the front, and that's why... Well, where's that you, I, you mentioned element hunter, sorry, keep standing up if you, if you wish, uh, but mentioned element hunter before. I'd never heard that term, element hunter, so there are, the, these people do exist. How did they you exist. discover them? It's a, fantastic, it's a fantastically exciting term for what you might consider a slightly odd hobby, but... It was, this is the starting point of the book, a number of different starting points, but one of them was finding out that there are real, thing, there are real people called element hunters. And I thought, if I was 14, now I would want to be an element hunter. Who doesn't want to be an element hunter? So uh, uh, as soon as I discovered that, I thought, okay, that's an interesting basis for a book. Plus, my uh, son, who was 10 at the time, was mad about science and came home from school, was mad about science, and I thought I would write him a short story because there wasn't really anything that, that, that fulfilled what he wanted. And it was going to be about four, four sides of A4, and it turned out to be that, so it's quite a few sides of A4. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it was a coming together of all those, of all those things, really. And uh, during the writing, um, did your son help with some research? If you had to do Absolutely not. Research, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, when, I, when I wrote this, I wrote it with no one knowing what I was doing. They, they were aware that I was writing, and I was taking an awful lot of time doing it. 
but I didn't tell them anything at all about it, and my son didn't know that I was writing it because of him. Uh, so I didn't, they, they didn't see it until it was completely finished. And I don't think asking your son for research is ever a good idea. Okay. Uh, and I've just finished the second one. I think, I'd, I think I finished it on the train coming up here actually today. And uh, I'm not asking him for research for that either. Okay, there is a sneak preview of the, of the second one at the end yes, of the first Yes, right, yeah, right at the end. Yeah. So, so that one's done. Do you know when that's, that's coming? Uh, it should be coming out next March, yeah. Oh. So the paperback of this comes out in October, and then the new book comes out, which is called Itch Rocks. Itch Rocks? Yes. Fantastic. Which is actually suggested by uh, a reviewer on a blog um, somewhere. And then the headline of the blog was Itch Rocks, and I thought, that's quite good. I, quite, <laughs> I might have that. So it kind of worked. Um, and the play on words with music and that, were, do you, uh, were you listening to music as you were writing? Is it in the background? Yeah, is it the, music, the music is, I mean, music for younger attendees here is what I, what I do. I play music uh, a lot for a living on Radio 2, which your parents might listen to, or your grandparents might listen to, and, and one day you will. <laughs> <laughs> and Simon could still be and on I'll, it. And I'll still be there. <laughs> exactly right. That's the way I like to think about it. But um, there is music. Uh, there was a lot of uh, musical influences. It's actually in the book a lot less than I thought it was going to be. But Jack, who is Itch's cousin, there is a song called Cousin Jack by a band called Show of Hands who had come from uh, Devon. And Cousin Jack is a Cornish term used to... It's become the name for a Cornishman abroad, really. And... Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, as the Cornish miners lost their jobs, they went abroad uh, and mined, and they were referred to as Cousin Jack. So uh, I wanted to, and it's a fantastic song, and I wanted to put Jack in there, and so that's why Jack is the cousin. Um, also, there's a fantastic tradition in this country of songs about mining, uh, and uh, I was listening a lot to mining songs, which sounds like a very bizarre sort of backdrop to be having. And... There is a section where they go down a mine <clears throat> uh, in this book. And I wanted to go down a Cornish mine, which was difficult to arrange. So instead, I went to the, uh, the National Mining Museum in Huddersfield, and I went down a mine for the afternoon, which is, I would say everybody should do. It's the most astonishing uh, thing uh, that anyone could do. And, I want, and I'm thinking about taking them back underground uh, in future uh, episodes. But yes, there was a lot of, um, a lot of music and musical traditions which were playing while I was writing. That's interesting. Um, and Sorry, you're talking about, so you wanted to write about a scene underground, so you went underground. Uh, there's a lot of research, so it, obviously there's going to be some scientific research in the book, Yeah. but uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about reading the book, the adventure story set in Cornwall, your love of Cornwall seems to come out of the page as well, you seem to know these places, Yes. and one of my all-time favourite sections of the book, and I want to give any spoilers away, but uh, our hero Itch is, is, is running away through uh, the spoil heaps out of a mine, and the, 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 the descriptions of the towering spoil heaps is fantastic, as he's trying to escape the bad guys. Um, I mean, have you seen that? Have you been to one of those? Have you walked so, among those spoil heaps? You... Uh, Stephanie, can we have the map of Cornwall up? Again, it's a, a spectacularly boring slide. I've only brought boring slides, actually, and the, <laughs> the most boring one is still to come. <laughs> But, it may, you know, I'm sure lots of people have had uh, Cornish holidays. Uh, and, and I, as a kid, had lots of Cornish holidays. Uh, and it was only later on. I mean, basically, you see one type of Cornwall when you go on holiday. And that's the surfing side, and that's the beach side, and that's terrific. But there is this extraordinary uh, history 
in Cornwall of mining, which is why they go underground, which is why the book starts with, with an earthquake. Uh, everything and everything spills on from the earthquake. They actually, it's set, although I don't mention it, it's set in Bude, right in the top of North Cornwall, because that's, uh, that's where we had our holidays. And so I could picture an awful lot of it in my head. But there is another reason for, for setting it in Cornwall, and that is the geology of Cornwall is unique uh, in Britain. It's still a mystery. We know a lot of the stuff that's under there, and the tin and the copper, which has been mined over the years, and the arsenic, which was mined there as well. There is gold under there. There is uranium as well. But it's so dense, it's, the geologists in Cornwall still tell you it's a complete mystery. So that's why it's set in Cornwall. And I'm, and I'm glad that some of the sense of Cornwall came out of that. I did have a, uh, a, a teaching friend who's the, uh, one of the leading geographers in the country lives in Cornwall helping me in case I got some of the facts wrong. But the spoil heaps are, you know, are quite extraordinary. And if you get a chance to visit the disused mines in Cornwall, you know, do so under, uh, not under the circumstances that they do because it's particularly uh, dangerous. But if you get a chance to do a guided tour, I would recommend it. So it's actually, it, it could be quite possible that Itch in the Stories discovers this, this brand new element that's never existed before. Yeah. So it could be possible that there is stuff down there that we don't know about yet that, that, that could be... Well, okay, so the, the, so the science of the... If you haven't read the book, the, the um, Itch collects the periodic table, and in the course of the events, he, he discovers some rocks which are behaving in a very bizarre way, and it turns out that it's a, a brand-new type of rock, a brand-new element which hasn't existed before. Um, I can't say where they came from because that's sort of uh, revealed in the book. It does... It, it sits within the realms of science. It is, uh, there's a big author's note, very long author's note at the end uh, for all the people who go, this is complete rubbish. That couldn't happen. Uh, I got some advice from a, a, a nuclear physicist called Paddy Regan who works at Surrey University and an extraordinary chemist at UCL called uh, Andrea Seller. And they both encouraged me to, to invent this, this new element, element 126, which gets a name, again, that comes up uh, at the end of the book. Because there is this, what happens is, at, at the, can we go back to the periodic table? Because I find it interesting now. <laughs> okay, a lot of these are very stable elements, so copper and gold and hydrogen, all these things are, and lead and tin. They just sit here. They, don't, they are capable of very exciting things, but they tend just to sit here. At this top end here, they tend to be very, uh, they kind of only exist for fractions of a second and they're created in labs. Anything beyond 92, 93 is unstable anyway. Uh, and as you get to the high-end numbers, they really, really, you know, you don't find them. They don't occur naturally uh, on Earth. They have to be created in the labs. But as you go off the scale, once you go beyond 118, scientists think that when you get to about if I remember this right, about 122, 123, 124, 125, there is this thing called the uh, Island of Stability. Uh, and I thought they were making this up when they started talking about the Island of Stability. But they think that the elements will start to become more stable again and that they could physically exist so that if, if 126 does exist somewhere, you could put it on the table. You might want to leave the room very quickly, <laughs> uh, yeah. but it would physically exist, not just for a few seconds, but maybe for thousands of years. So... So it, it is set within is, the real world of science. That's fascinating. And, and it is quite a, a dangerous element that Itch discovers. Um, well, what's the point in discovering a safe element? Well, I was going to say, that's, that's what... That's I've discovered what, uh, something that's like tin. How exciting. <laughs> Let's stick with tin. Are we sticking with the same element throughout the series of books? Or will um, it be uh, well, different ones appear? Or? 
Book, would that be given too much away? Well, uh, well, I'll say is book two is a continue. Although book one does finish, there is a hint that there's more to come, and so book two is dealing pretty much with the aftermath of book one. Okay. okay. If that's yes, no. If that's yeah, we don't want to give the enough. end in a way. But um, the uh, it's interesting in your author's note. You say you came to science quite late. Yes. Um, you didn't really care about science until sort of. No, well, going through school, I wasn't really that. I mean, a lot depends on your teachers, and if you have a passionate science teacher, um, chances are you'll end up being enthusiastic about science. I had good history teachers. I ended up doing history and politics at university. When I was on Five Live for nine years, we made a point of doing science. I just thought it was an area which was underreported because with the best will in the world, the leading scientists are usually given a couple of minutes maximum on the radio or television to discuss and talk about really, really complex issues. Let's take the Hadron Collider, for example, okay? I bet, overwhelmingly, everyone in this room, when the news came up, they thought, right, this is really important, I'm going to listen to this. And within 30 seconds, they go, well, I'm still interested, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. <laughs> and that's because you're not, you know, they, these guys aren't given long enough. So we made a point of giving them half an hour, 40 minutes, maybe longer, just to unpack some of this extraordinary work that they're, that they're doing. And I still struggled, obviously, to understand an awful lot of what they're talking about, particularly theoretical physics, which is just mind-blowing. But at least we were getting somewhere. You know, I really thought it was an exciting area to work with. And so when I stopped working on, on Five Live, I credit Five Live in the book because I don't think I'd have written it, this book without them. Because when you talk to these passionate scientists, it kind of rubs off on you somewhere. One in particular actually is referred to in the book. Uh, and that is one of the most amazing British men who you might not have heard of, but he's called James Lovelock. He's 93, 94 years old, and he invented Gaia theory. Um, which you might want to ask me about. But anyway, he is one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met. Uh, he rather depressingly thinks that we've already reached the tipping point uh, as far as global warming is concerned, and all we can do is sort of batten down the hatches. So it might be that Radio 2 won't become your favourite radio station <laughs> in years to come. But he's an, he's an absolutely extraordinary man, so much so that he's sort of in the heart of this book. Yeah, I'd come back to Guy Theory in a, in a moment, if that's okay, because talking about uh, your curiosity for science now, there is um, a couple of lines fairly early in the book when Itchy's talking about he, he was given a book by his grandfather which sparked off yes. his curiosity. Uh, and, and it sort of bemoans the fact a little bit that maybe some young people today aren't curious enough. Ah, um, good, good point. Can I, can yeah, I yeah, go take on that? Um, okay, so right, right early on in the book, it's almost as though you queued this up, uh, early on in the book, you're quite right, uh, it's explained how Itch gets his passion for science, uh, which he gets from his father, because his father, when he's very young, gives him a copy uh, of a book. This is the copy of the book. It's a real book. The Golden Book of Chemistry Experience by Robert Brent. You can see it's not a current book. See, it came out uh, in the late 50s, I think, early 60s, in the United States of America. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a banned book. There are only 126 copies that exist. You will not be able to buy that, this book even here. Or if you find one as a second-hand book, snap it up. You can get it online. Uh, you can get, sort of get the whole thing uh, online. And it was banned because, as it says here in the front, how to set up a home laboratory over 200 simple experiments. The key there is home laboratory. <laughs> how to turn your house into, the, into an explosion, basically. Uh, and the science in it is all perfectly valid. It's just that it's fantastically dangerous. <laughs> so, um, 
So, the, yeah, there's a section in the book where uh, it is given this book and he, he gets this passion for, for science from that. And the reason why that's there is that there is a, there is a, a guy called, who I want to tell you about called David Hahn. Uh, that's him. Uh, in about 1991, 1992, David Hahn, who's American, uh, got referred to as the radioactive Boy Scout for a very good reason. And that, so this is before the internet. He was a little bit like Itch. He's a little bit geeky, but into science, ignored a bit by his parents. He was banished from the house to the shed at the end of the garden. And he essentially built one of those <laughs> in one of these. Okay. <laughs> he built, a, almost, almost got to a nuclear breeder reactor in his parents' shed. And the, the police and the authorities shut it down just before they think it was going to go live. Uh, and I read about, and, and, and this guy, David Hahn, was given a copy of that book when he was 14. See? So I thought, imagine if in real life, this happened that just by giving this book and getting a passion and getting in, and he was an element hunter, you could build a nuclear reactor just by getting bits and pieces and uh, assembling them and putting them uh, in the shed. Imagine what you could do with a story. However, just a word of, final word of caution, kids. <laughs> if you ignore safety instructions the way David Hahn did and the way Itch does, although I'll rein him in in a bit. Here's a picture of David Hahn a few years later. Okay, um, so... It does affect you if you don't follow the instructions. That's why they're there. And if you find a copy of that book by Robert Brennan, give it to your parents. Because <laughs> they'll, they'll put it in trust for you because you don't end up looking like that. Anyway, so move it on to a different slide there, Steffi. We don't want to look at David Hunt for too much. Uh, so Itch got off lightly just losing his eyebrows. Just you know? losing his, his eyebrows, eyebrows, yeah. But it is dangerous. They do, the Itch and um, his sister Glowy and cousin Jack, they do seem to face real danger, especially yes. with the element they found. It's quite... The, uh, the tension is palpable as you go through the novel. Um, it's, uh, so I, I genuinely thoroughly enjoyed it. I genuinely thoroughly enjoyed the, the adventure. Uh, and it, it's unusual, I suppose, for a, uh, a broadcaster, radio broadcaster, to, to, to write a novel. It's such, I always imagine, um, I don't know about yourselves, but I would imagine TV as a very collaborative kind of thing. There's lots of people everywhere. There's cameramen, there's lighting men, and so on and so forth. Whereas sitting by yourself... Just, just writing a book, that's quite a lonely pastime, you know? Um, did you find the two, sort of the, the, the main job and, and, and this job, was it, was, did they conflict at all because of well, that? Well, it, 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 it's odd. I mean, I've just written the one, um, but on, well, and now the second one, which is just finishing. But I had an absolute whale of a time, I have to say. I really, for the most part, found it, found it a thrilling experience. Um, it's the most lonely thing it's possible to do, I think, because... Uh, I mean, I followed, I didn't know what I was doing. I genuinely didn't know what I was doing. So I took advice from a book. Uh, and if anybody uh, wants to write a novel, the only thing I would recommend is to get hold of a book called On Writing by Stephen King, who's a horror writer, known to many people. Uh, and many years ago, he was involved in a very bad accident. And while he was recovering from that, he wrote a book which is part memoir and part This Is How You Write. And because I didn't have any writing tradition, I took all, the, all his advice about how many words a day, finding a particular place to, uh, to write, not telling anybody about what you're doing. I took it all to heart and copied it word for word and followed him to the letter. And he has this phrase, he said, I write with the door open and I rewrite. I write with the door shut and I rewrite with the door open. Meaning, while I'm, while I'm writing, 
I don't tell anybody. Don't talk to anyone about anything. Uh, and then once I've got it to a particular place and I'm happy with, then I open my door and then I discuss it. So essentially, you're writing and you're creating this story and you can't tell anyone. You can't ask anyone for advice. What would, what would Itch do in this? And I'm thinking, I don't know, what's he going to do? You, no use in asking anyone because they don't know. He's in, <laughs> entirely in your head. But that is very frustrating, but uh, I found quite thrilling. Fantastic. And, and what's nice, anybody can do it. Um, you know, anybody could, this is your first book a little bit later in life, but uh, anybody here can, can write. Can yes, even, even at do. my age, it's possible. <laughs> that wasn't what is. I meant. That wasn't That's what you meant. That wasn't what I meant. That's true. Should we uh, see if we, would you like to read? Should we get a few questions? Should I, uh, should Maybe I, a reading that launches uh, into a few questions. Yeah, yeah. Okay. that'd be great. Uh, I'll, I'll read a bit, but first of all, Another boring slide. Even more boring than the ones I've shown you already. And there it is, a piece of wallpaper. Anyone seen anything more boring than that? Okay, so this is a particular piece of wallpaper which is featured in the book. Uh, it's a bit smaller, but it is a piece of William Morris wallpaper. Uh, Itch buys his uh, elements from a dealer, right? It's a guy called Cake, and he sells elements which Itch buys, and he saves up. And he buys a piece of William Morris wallpaper, which was around in the 19th century. And uh, lots of people, if they could afford it, had this wallpaper in, the, in, their, in their houses. Now, the only problem with that is the color of this wallpaper, which is green, as you can see, but it's a particular type of green called Paris green. And in the 19th century, this, if you wanted green on your walls, you'd have that. You wouldn't have anything else, you'd have that. Paris green was, got its particular uh, pigment from arsenic. Arsenic is poison. That's how you would normally associate arsenic. It's very dangerous and it does kill people, as indeed did the William Morris wallpaper. Because what happens is, when it gets damp, as houses do, particularly as they did in the 19th century, uh, they, it gives off arsene gas. And arsene gas, when you inhale it, it makes you sick, it makes you vomit. I should say there's a lot of vomit in this book. Uh, and in some extreme cases, it did kill you. So, unfortunately, Itch doesn't know all about that. He does know that the William Morris wallpaper has got arsenic in it. But um, having been thrown out of his, uh, his collection has been moved, and it's, he's, his mum has said, right, take everything out of the house, take it to the shed at the end of the garden. Now, that's a very dangerous thing uh, to do. He thinks, right, I'm going to have to take my dangerous elements, and I'm going to have to take them to school. So he's got the William Morris wallpaper, which is already damp because it's been in his attic for a while, uh, and he's taking it to school. What he doesn't realize is that he's going to have to go to a biology lesson in the greenhouse. Uh, so if there's anyone who's feeling a little bit queasy at this point, uh, I should tell you that there is a little bit of vomiting that goes on uh, in, this, in this book. Uh, can I apologize again for uh, having a cold? And I should just dab uh, a lot if you look away. So uh, it is at school, and they're about to have the biology lesson. The main baddie in the book is a guy called Dr. Nathaniel Flowerdew. He is the head science teacher at the Cornwall Academy. The biology teacher is Miss Glenacre. Here we go, let chaos begin. After a few minutes, the door opened and Miss Glenacre appeared with Dr. Nathaniel Flowerdew, the head of science, at her shoulder. The sight of the two of them was enough to trigger a few groans around the edges of the student gathering. Miss Glenacre was, by common consent, approaching her 100th birthday and had never had a chari charitable thought about anyone in her life. 
The truth was, she was indeed writing, uh, waiting for retirement, but only from the vantage point of 64 years, and had actually enjoyed teaching until the paperwork and government took over. By contrast, laugh over there from a teacher. <laughs> By contrast, Flowerdew was an impressive figure. In his late 40s, he was rakishly good-looking, with a head full of well-cut, tight curls that had turned completely white. He had deep blue eyes, broad shoulders, and the figure of a man who had gym membership. As there wasn't a gym in the local area, everyone had concluded he had the relevant equipment at home. He was wearing a dark blue suit, brilliant white cotton shirt, an electric blue silk tie. The jacket was undone and a brushed chrome watch showed from beneath his left cuff. His shoes were black loafers. Everything was expensive and somehow out of place in a school field outside a greenhouse. Dab, dab. <laughs> Excuse me. As a teacher, however, Flowerdew had proved instantly unpopular. Always seemingly in a sour mood, he gave everyone the impression that the academy was somehow beneath him. It was also clear that the rest of the staff didn't rate him. His reputation, so everyone said, was as a brilliant chemist. The staff and pupils of the academy were waiting for the evidence. He addressed the students, his voice crisp and educated. Shut up, 9W, and listen, you will have one period with Miss Glenacre here, and when you come out, you will not have fainted, you will have listened, and you will know what a Neomachia cariola is. Don't touch anything you're not asked to do. Don't put anything in your mouth, Burnham, and for heaven's sake, drink water when you need it. You don't need to ask permission. Miss Glenacre is pleased to be your guide. Listen well. And with that, he strode back around the old hall in the direction of the labs. Johnny Burnham, who had once put some magnesium ribbon in his mouth to see what it tasted like, flushed the scarlet and shrank a little. Don't do that. Don't do that. There's lots of things you shouldn't do. They all trooped into the steamy confines of the greenhouse. Miss Glenacre marched to the far end and waited, hands on hips, for everyone to catch her up. She called out, All bags to be left at the door. There isn't room for swinging rucksacks in here. Itch, Jack, and half the class turned round and put their bags in a heap by the entrance. Itch wondered whether it was wise to leave his rucksack unattended, but he didn't have the choice. He left it on top of the pile where he could see it. They trooped back past the bananas, tomatoes, cacti, and other unrecognizable plants to where the glowing Miss Glenacre was waiting to start the lesson. Why are we here? she said. Silence. Anyone, why are we here? An accident of evolution, chanced the very brave Ian Steele, standing near some peculiar dangly pink plants. Itch and a few others smiled. Miss Glenacre scowled. Idiot boy, Steele. Not why are we on earth, as you well know. Why are we in the greenhouse? Because it cost a fortune, tried Bruno Paul, smiling and nudging James Potts, who was standing next to him. If the point you're making is that we're very lucky to have such a splendid resource, you're quite correct, but that is not the answer. Anyone. Itch knew the answer, but kept his head down. No one at all, sighed Miss Glenacre. We are studying, and she said this next word very slowly, as if to five-year-olds, photosynthesis, turning carbon dioxide into sugar and oxygen using light. She tutted, and motioning for the group to follow her, turned and started her tour of the plants. They'd only been in the greenhouse for about 15 minutes, but the temperature was 35 degrees Celsius. Glenacre's words were punctuated by the sound of water bottles being squished and emptied by the students of year nine. It was after about 30 minutes, just as Miss Glenacre was trying to pull down the top of a giant spiky green and yellow plant, that the first student vomited. It was Johnny Burnham, and it was spectacular. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> he had been swaying and staggering for a few moments. Then, with one hand over his mouth and the other pushing his classmates out of the way, he brought up his breakfast all over a plant labelled Eucomis polyvansi. He knelt down on the floor, his hands gripping the sides of a large pot, his head deep in the foliage. It was clear he hadn't finished. <laughs> then two girls fainted. Natalie Hussein and Debbie Price had turned horribly pale and collapsed on top of each other. There were screams from some of the other girls, and before Miss Glenacre had reached the door to allow some fresh air in, four more students had been sick. The stink of vomit filled the greenhouse within seconds. Everybody out, yelled the teacher. Tom, go and get Dr. Flowerdew. Tom Westgate ran out of the door. The class stumbled outside as quickly as they could, hands or tissues over their mouths and noses. Oh, good cue for that. <laughs> Glenacre propped up Johnny Burnham and called for Itch and Jack to help Natalie and Debbie. Itch picked up Natalie by the shoulders, got her into the sitting position. She groaned, opened her eyes, and was sick over Itch's trousers. Nice shot, Nats, called a fleeing Darcy Campbell. I'm feeling a bit bad myself, Mitz, Miss, said Itch, looking down at the dampness on his legs. Same, said Jack, who'd been struggling to help Debbie Price to her feet. Itch swiftly lowered Natalie back down and ran for the door. He almost made it too. He got as far as the pile of bags and was sick there instead. He stumbled outside and slumped down on the grass. He closed his eyes. Everything was spinning. He could tell without looking that a good proportion of Miss Glenacre's biology class were now in the process of being violently ill. That's the kind of, that's the kind of tone for, uh, for the rest of the book. Brilliant. Uh, so, yeah, shall we uh, yeah, 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 get absolutely. some questions yeah. from the audience? We have a roving microphone. Um, yes, we do. We do have a roving microphone. So if you wouldn't mind waiting for the microphone to come to you uh, so that Simon can hear you quite well, and everybody can hear your question, really. Do we have any questions for Simon? Oh, we have one right I down the front from the... Star pupil <laughs> down on the front. Hello, what's your name? How does writing oh, hang on. What's your name? Oh, Megan. Megan, how are you, Megan? <laughs> Sorry? How are you? Fine, thank you. Cool, carry on. How does writing a book compare to being on the radio? Well, that's a good question. Uh, it's hard to think of it as anything that's more different than being on the radio, because on the radio, um, we kind of make it up as we go along a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised. <laughs> Um, and it's a collaborative process. So you work with a producer and you have assistant producers, you have an engineer. Uh, and you sort of work on it together. And obviously you're playing music which has been put together by other groups of people who've worked on that for a, for a long period of time. So it's very much a collaborative effort. Um, and great fun. This, as I mentioned earlier, is you on your own and that's it. You, you stop and you go away and you do some research and you call people up and you look on the internet and then you go and talk to people. Uh, you go and visit places, you go down the mine, you do all that stuff. But essentially, it's you on your own. So they're very, very different. They're both equally enjoyable, but very, very different. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the question. Anybody else like to go? Uh, well, I have another gentleman down the front, is that? Okay. Uh, this, this gentleman down the front, sorry. What what what's, your, what's your name, sir? Matthew. Hello, Matthew. Yes. What gave you the idea to do like the augmented reality cover of the book? Ah, very, very good. Well, Almost as though that was cued by the publisher. <laughs> yeah. Hands up if you know what augmented reality is. <laughs> Someone over the age of thirty knows what augmented reality. Is. The honest answer to that is I, 
I had no idea what augmented reality was until the fine art people at Random House suggested that we did an, uh, an augmented reality cover, and I will now demonstrate to you what augmented reality is. This is good. Keith, is you stand good. there. I will. Now, I appreciate that the screen for this is kind of small. I, it's on my phone. But this is the way you have to do it. Okay, so hopefully enough people will be able to see it. Okay, if I go down. Now, you, you won't be able to hear it, but it does do sound effects. But here we go. I started halfway through and playing you the trailer. Here we go. There you go. So the cover kind of comes to life, and then it plays you the trailer for the book, which I'll show you in just a minute uh, up on the screen. If you, the, 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 weird, the weirdest thing is this. I don't know if anyone can see this, but anyway, it's quite fun for me. <laughs> so on the inside flap, you know, author picture, very good. If only the author could speak to you. There you go, and it all comes to life. And it's all really quite... Oh, you want to mic that? I well, if you could hear it, that was all. So, uh, it's, all, it's all embedded. Uh, in, don't ask me how, how it works. But it's kind of, half of it is embedded there, and half of it is embedded in the book. And what's, what's really fun is, uh, as I said, it's my first book. But all the other authors at Random House who've written lots and lots of books, they've seen this and they've thought, hmm, <laughs> that's interesting. I think I might have that on my next book. So they've created a bit of a problem. Um, but uh, that's what augmented reality is. And I didn't have uh, a thought about it, but the people at the publishers did, which is why you have publishers. Do you like it? Do you like the augmented reality? It's good, isn't it? It's yeah. very cool. Very Thank cool. Uh, well, somebody else would like to ask you. Oh, we've got a little, little lady on the front row. Would you like to make it into a film? Would I like to make it into a film? What's your name, by the way? Annie. Hello, Annie. Would I like to make it into a film? <laughs> I wouldn't say no <laughs> if they asked. Um, when I was writing it, if I'm perfectly honest, you're not supposed to say this, but when I was writing it, I kind of cast it. Or I've already cast it. You know? <laughs> so if somebody wants to turn it into a film, I've already worked out who the actors are as well. Um, and I think it would make quite a good film. How, how old are you? Seven. Well, by the time we get to make it, so Chloe in the book is 11, but I reckon you could pass it in a couple of years. So, uh, any 14-year-olds here? Okay, well, you'll be too old. So, uh, <laughs> any 12-year-olds here? There you go. So, in a couple of years, it could be, stand up. Yeah, you kind can of... You, can you cover your eyebrows? Can you... <laughs> Torch his eyebrows off. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's very good. So, uh, it would be very nice, obviously. But these things are decided elsewhere by, by other people. But uh, it, would, it would be nice, yes. It would be nice. Okay. We, we, did we have a question from, uh, yeah, the gentleman in the, the grey top with a red pipe in? Uh, just a little bit further up. If you could put your hand up till the mic gets to you, that'd be great. How many pages does it have? <laughs> right, well, first of all, what's your name? Ben, how many pages does it have? <laughs> Hang on a second. It'd take you long to think of that question. 421. That, that includes the start of the new book, though. Maybe, maybe it only reads the end yeah. of the year. 400, then. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, <laughs> who, who else? Uh, got, there we go. Lots coming hands. up. Uh, my, my itch there. Uh, yeah. yeah. Go okay. to the new itch. With a Hollister t-shirt. Keep your hand up if that's okay. Thank you. 
Yeah, so what's your name? James. Hello, James, yes. Did you collect anything when you were younger? Uh, I didn't, actually. No, I, I, my son has now. My, uh, my son, who was 10 and is now 12, he's started to collect the periodic table, and he shows me his, <laughs> shows me his collection, which is very strange. But when, when I was your age, I, wasn't, I didn't think science was very exciting because uh, my science teachers weren't very good. Um, which is why I quite enjoyed making the head of science a really horrible person uh, uh, in the book. But no, I didn't. No, I didn't. But the thing is, I just pass it back. I mean, it's the point that it makes in the book is that it is. It's quite easy to because an awful lot of the stuff is just hanging around the house. Uh, so uh, a banana. Anyone want to show off and tell me what uh, element is in a banana? Fan. How about that? It's potassium and it's radioactive. Uh, right, so let's see. All oh, you clever guys. Let's see what... Okay, what's the uh, calcium? Very good. Although you're clearly over 14, sir. <laughs> Are you a science teacher? Engineer. Engineer, very good. So, yes, calcium. So, the point I'm making is if you start to collect the, uh, the periodic table, once you work out what's in what, you, it's quite easy to raid the house. Although, tell your parents. Aluminium. Not aluminium. Silicon. No, not silicon. Engineer? Uh, fluorine. Fluorine is, uh, uh, is in here. It may well be that some of those... Teflon isn't an element, but is a, Teflon is kind of registered trademark. <laughs> uh, but if you're going to take your, take your parents' uh, saucepans, then you, you need to ask permission. What else have we got in here? Covered in chromium is right. Silver with some smart uh, from the smarter end of town. Uh, <laughs> down here. Let me just see if I got any more. So it is it is possible to start uh, to start collecting. If I'd know if I to answer your question, if I'd known any of this when I was younger, I would have started it. Uh, this kind of represents all earrings. I don't know if this has actually got the particular element in it. Metal. <laughs> Uh, titanium is what I'm after. So uh, there's, a, there's a bit in the, uh, in the book where Itch takes his brother's tongue stud, which he's left in the fruit bowl, um, uh, and, uh, and adds it to his collection. So uh, it's quite easy to start a collection. My son hasn't, uh, hadn't, but has now started. And it's quite big, his son's collection now? It's got, it's quite got about 20. It's quite easy to get to 23 or 24 elements without buying anything. Yeah, and, uh, and certainly without from the... buying anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But tell your parents if you're buying anything radioactive because there are legal restrictions. Absolutely. Um, where should we go? Where should, we've got a young lady right, right at the very back. Is that okay? Got that far? Hello, what's your name? Leah. Hello, Leah. What's your question? Does your son like the book? Does my son like the book? Uh, very Fortunately, he does. Um, when, I, when I finished the book the first time, I pressed print, uh, on the, which is a very nerve-wracking moment. I pressed print, and it, 400 pages of A4 came out. Uh, and he disappeared up to the room, uh, and he read it through, and he declared it a hit, uh, and asked very similar questions like, is it going to be a film, that kind of thing, because I think he fancied himself in the title role. <laughs> um, but he did, and he's now, he's now just finished the second one. Uh, I kind of thought he was the starting point, so he got to read the second one. But yes, he, he does like it. And now, now, whenever he reads a book, however good it is, because he loves, loves reading, reads all the time. So if he's just finished a latest huge blockbuster, if he's read The Hunger Games or whatever it is, I'll say, how was he? He says, yeah, yeah, it was great, it was great. Pause. 
Not as good as itch, though. <laughs> Even if he doesn't believe that, he knows that it's very good for his sweet collection that he, that he, that he says so, that. So are you a little bit of a, a cool dad? Uh, I've heard recently that they're trying to ban you from Facebook, your children, I think. Oh, well, no, parents, parents shouldn't do Facebook. I mean, I, this is... Uh, my show does, does Facebook, but uh, wrinkly Facebook would be fine. <laughs> but Facebook... Do kids want their parents looking at the photographs of them at parties? And the answer is no. So um, I am officially not allowed to do officially Facebook. Officially banned really, from Facebook. I, no. And also, obviously, most of the children here are not allowed to do Facebook because you have to be 13 or 14. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you do. Even if you do. Sorry, and, uh, somebody else. Somebody else. We've got the It's great. We've got so uh, this, this girl down the front yeah. has been very keen. And very, yes, what's your name? Lara. Hello, Lara. Yes. Um, did you do any of the experiments that were in the book? Ha! Well, <laughs> did I do any of the experiments in the book is the question. Let, should, we, should we show them one of the experiments that I didn't do? Do the sodium one. Now, here's, here's an experiment that I would like to have done. I know this is the answer to the question. Here's something I would have liked to have done. <laughs> you don't have to pass health and safety if you're going to do it. sodium plus water in dangerous amounts. Okay, well you get, you get the idea. So, so uh, the, the book ends with sodium plus water. Uh, it may well be at school you've seen uh, sodium which has to be kept under uh, oil because it reacts so much with, uh, with the air and with water. But when you drop a large amount in, which is what science teachers want to do all the time, that's the kind of thing that happens. Uh, to answer your question, I didn't do the... Exp there aren't that many experiments that are in the book, although in the next book, it's very, very dangerous. But I didn't need to uh, do them and recreate them because the amount of sodium that we use in the book is so extraordinary and the watery confines where he uses it is also not really uh, repeatable. Uh, I'll just show you the, show the phosphorus. So um, if you don't have a big black bin, you still shouldn't use your toilet at home for that yeah, one. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> you do these at school or with science teachers or whatever. So th this is just this is far more sedate. I should have built up to the sodium one. Here's another experiment that I didn't do uh, for the book. But um, when he blows his eyebrows off, is it just going to be a close-up of that? Anyway, I don't know. You might not see anything. When he blows his eyebrows off, right at the beginning of the book, uh, he has m it just mixed together... Here he goes. Uh, some phosphorus and some sulfur and some gunpowder from, um, from a lifeboat flare. And he's got them in a bowl and he's mixing them up with a screwdriver. Hey, guess what happens? Explosion. Uh, and he blows his eyebrows off. Under more sedate circumstances, uh, so if it was just phosphorus, it would do that. So that, which when combined with an extra little bit of gunpowder for fun, will blow your eyebrows off. So that's the kind of thing... I didn't do at home. These are all experiments that I didn't do because it would be extremely... Uh, you have to do them in a, you know, in, uh, in a science lab. So it's a very good question, but no, I didn't do any at home. But they're the kind of experiments that I was... But everything's about. possible in the book, which is really nice. Of course, and all the science uh, kind of works. There's another bit I didn't do which involves xenon gas. And when you get to that bit, you'll know why I didn't do it at home because I'd have been arrested. <laughs> <laughs>
That's right. We is anybody desperate for a question that we've been missing out? There's yes, uh, who would you like to? There's a gentleman over there, and then you, and then you, and then a question maybe from someone over the age of thirty. If uh, yes. Hello. What's your name? Matthew. Hello, Matthew. As well. <laughs> um, and I was just wondering. Is there any particular reason that you decide to call your main character Itch? I mean, I know his full name is Itchingham, yeah. but is there any reason why you chose that name? Yes, yes, there is. Um, and it's a very good question. Yeah, Itchingham Loft and Nathaniel Flowerdew really existed. They're real people. Um, out in Suffolk, on the east coast of England, there is a church in a place called Blytheborough. And it's a magnificent church known as the Cathedral of the Marshes. And they have on the wall, as they do in many places, a list of everyone who's ever been a vicar at this, at this church. And in the 17th century, Itchingham Loft was a vicar at Blytheborough Church, followed by Nathaniel Flowerdew. And I saw those names on a plaque, this was about five years ago, I saw these names on a plaque when I was walking around and I thought, they're really weird names, I wonder, you know, I'll just take a photograph of the plaque. And when I, when I thought of the idea of doing the story, I thought, what I need is an interesting name for the character. And he could have been called David Jameson, I suppose, but and then I suddenly remembered that Itchingham Loft was an interesting name and Itch was an obvious abbreviation uh, of that. So, so it came from there. So, and in fact, in the second book, it's also populated by... A lot of the characters were also vicars at this church, <laughs> which, is, which is a really strange thing to do, but they're, but they're fun names. But yeah, so uh, the real Itchingham Loft was a vicar in the 17th century. What's interesting is... Well, I th the reason why it stood out is it goes like 1640, Itchingham Loft, 1650-something, Nathaniel Flowerdew, brackets, intruder. <laughs> intruder. And I thought, how, what has happened to put intruder? They obviously hated him then. <laughs> so they put intruder. He shouldn't have been there. And I, uh, and I think, what I, from what I can gather, what, what I think happened was, this is the time of the English Civil War, and Cromwell had just become protector of England, and he was getting rid of the vicars that he didn't like because he thought they were papists, and he was putting in his guys, the Puritans. So we think Nathaniel Flowerdew was a Puritan who would have been hated and imposed on this particular parish. So I like to think that Itchingham Loft and Nathaniel Flowerdew hated each other, although they'd have forgiven each other in a kind of a Christian way, but they hated each other, really. Uh, that's what I, I have no evidence for that, but that's what I, that's what I guess uh, happened. Yes, who was, who was the next going to be, going to be next? It was the lady uh, in white in the middle there. Yes, what's your name? Jennifer. Very nice to see you, Jennifer. What's your question? Uh, will you do, always do books for children, or will you do ones for adults as well? See, now, that's a very good question. Um, I was asked this, the first ever one of these book festivals that I did, I was asked that question. And the honest answer is, I don't think of this as a book. I mean, it is a book for children, and, it, and I wrote it for my son, and it does say 10-plus on the, on the cover, and I'm doing lots of schools talks, and I appreciate all the families who've, who've come today, and, uh, and it is a family book. The honest truth is, once I started writing it, I wrote it for myself. And so I kind of think of it as a grown-up book, and there's lots of stuff in here which... Uh, older people will pick up on, like all the Gaia theory stuff, which I think a lot of kids will just skip over, is kind of there for an older audience. And there are some themes, I think, in there about energy conservation and looking after the planet and all those kind of things. So 
I'm, to answer your question, I think I'm going to stick with this because I'm enjoying writing books for whoever enjoys this. And if that's kids, then it's kids. And if it's parents, then it's parents. Um, whoever picks it up, I think I'm very, I'm very happy. But thank you for asking the question. And, uh, and it, it was, was right to the back, gentlemen up there. And then, do you take a question from anyone who's over 30? I don't know. We may, we may have chance. We may have chance. We'll see. Depends how long you take on the ants. Yeah, okay, well, a long time. <laughs> yes, what's your name? Alexander. Hello, Alexander, what's your question? Um, if you could own any, any element, what would you own? If I could what, any element? Own. Own any element, other than gold. <laughs> or platinum. Or silver. Um, it's funny how platinum's ended up as being considered more valuable than gold, because it's actually just as common as gold. Um, I think, I think if I could, I mean, my favourite one is Mercury, just because it's so extraordinary uh, and is so unlike any other uh, element. So, but I, I'm not sure I'd want to own. So, if okay, if I'm going to ask you answer your question quite specifically, uh, gold. I mean, I, I know it's a joke, but but why not? You know, it is still a quite extraordinary substance. Uh, it is still, I think, and I'm not a scientist, but I don't think there's any other, I'm sure I'll be corrected if I'm wrong, and I would have been at the Cheltenham Science Festival. If you bury most of the metals underground and leave them for 200 years, when you take them out, they won't be in the same condition. Some of them will have rusted or they've degraded in some way. Gold will look exactly the same. You'll polish it off and it'll be exactly the same. It is a quite extraordinary substance. So let's get greedy. Let's choose gold. That's, uh, Fantastic. that's, that's what I'll choose. And um, would you like an older person? We've, we've got a gentleman in a very fine green checked shirt there. It's very, very nice. But even though you're over 30, you still have to wait for the microphone. These are the rules. What's your name? I'm Richard from Blackburn. Hello, Richard. Um, you, you switched from Radio 5 to Radio 2. Yeah. Do you miss the opportunity to do the the 30, 40 minute, dense, long, detailed interviews that you could do on Radio 5? Uh, well, sometimes, yes. Sometimes. I mean, they were, they were my favourite bits of the programme. And it goes back to one of the point I was making about the scientists, is that if you, if you have James Lovelock or if you have a theoretical physicist on for five minutes, there's no point. There's genuinely no point because they can't get anything over. The same is true of... Um, the longest interview I did was Michael Barrymore, uh, which was an hour and five minutes because it was so revelatory at the time uh, and got police reaction and all those kind of stuff. And it, and it was sufficiently loose so that you could expand and we dropped things as we moved on. Um, so occasionally, yes, it's, uh, it was a unique way of doing, uh, of doing an interview. Um, after nine years, I'd sort of done that a lot. And when the opportunity came to go to Radio 2, I, you know, I took it and I didn't have to move my family to Salford. There's nothing wrong with Salford, but they're all in school and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the longer form interview is, is fantastic. Some people are very unrelaxed with that, particularly the people who are used to just speaking for five minutes. But I found it great. So. Fantastic. Yes. Thank you very much. I'm very, very sorry, but we, we unfortunately we have to uh, come to a close of this it's session. it's two minutes to two. Um, I can get one more question. Okay, okay. Got one more question. You're, I'll let you choose. No, I'll let you choose. Let you choose. I no, it's your choice. <laughs> right. This young lady here has had her hand up for a, quite a long time. Okay. So in the, the blue sparkly top. Hannah. Hello, Hannah. What's your name? 
This is going to be the best question of the afternoon because it's the last question. No pressure. Go. What, what um, are the names are the, of the H characters? What are the other names of the H characters in the book? Yeah. Um, now, how old are you? Seven. Seven. There's no one who's quite seven. <coughs> the youngest character is Chloe, who's Itch's sister. Uh, Itch is 14, and he has a cousin called Jacqueline, who he calls Jack. He has an older brother called Gabriel, who's got a girlfriend at university, and then we kind of don't see him very much. Girlfriend. <laughs> uh, and he has lots of, there are lots of uh, classmates uh, with assorted names. Uh, he has a, uh, a dad called Nicholas. In fact, the original uh, Itchingham Lost Father was called Nicholas, which is why that's there. And he has, yeah, hi. And he has a mother called Jude, and they're the main itch characters. Is that okay? Yeah. You tuned out there just for a minute. <laughs> but thank you for the question, and thank you for coming. Thank you so much, Anna, for finishing us off. Uh, I think you'll agree. It's been an informative, entertaining, uh, germ-inducing <laughs> afternoon. It's been a fantastic hour's uh, time with Simon. Uh, if you would like to get anything signed, as I said, we will be in the signing tent just next door. But please join with me in thanking Simon Mayo here this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for coming. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.